You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to More to Be Said. This is a podcast we put together at Kingsway Christian Church where we take some heavier, bigger, more serious topics and talk about them at length. And today I have the great privilege of having with me Chase Cotton. He's the community director at the Willow Center in Brownsburg. Chase, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It is my pleasure. So we are talking about the topic of addiction. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your training, your experience? Help us know why we should be listening to you today. Of course. So as the community director of the Willow Center, uh, which is a DMHA certified outpatient substance use treatment mental health counseling center, my role sort of straddles the line between public relations and education. My background is in public health. um, So I have a public health degree from Purdue. And a lot of the topics that I find myself most often teaching about are mental health and addiction related topics, both in my previous position with the Henders County Health Department before I was here at the Willow Center and currently. So oftentimes you'll find me in the community, whether it's at local public schools, whether it is with the Parks and Rec departments, whether it is at places of worship or uh, workplaces, speaking about these things in a way that's educational and preventative of future problems. Thank you so much for sharing your background with us. How long have you been living in the area? I've been in Brownsburg for uh, just over a year now, uh, but I've been working in Henders County for four years and I love being a part of this community. Now, are you Hoosier born and bred? I sure am. I am an Indiana boy born and raised for sure. I know she skipped the word Hoosier there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, Boiler up for those boilers who are listening, (laughs) but uh, I got Hoosier blood because of my parents, both IU grads. So forgive (laughs) us. We're really glad that you're here with us today. We'll quit poking around at those fun little things. Let's just go ahead and jump in with the big question of the day. When you are defined, defining addiction. How do you define it? What is addiction? So I'm going to define it slightly differently than what you might find in like the Merriam-Webster's or the first thing that pops up on Google. My definition for addiction is addiction is a brain disease with mental, emotional, behavioral, and social symptoms. It's most often related to the brain becoming dependent upon a substance, whether that's chemical or otherwise. And it's usually because of the brain's perceived survival dependent upon that substance, whatever that is. So your brain thinks I need need this to get through the day. It's not just about getting high. It's much deeper than that, which we'll dig into a bit. Okay. So let's go ahead and unpack that. You, I noticed you said to a substance and it could be chemical or otherwise. So when you think chemical, we tend to think of drugs or alcohol or something else, but you're saying you could be addicted to anything. I could be addicted to uh, biting my fingernails. I could be addicted to any number of things the way you're defining it. Am I hearing you right? Yes. And I wanted to present that broader definition for precisely that reason. Addiction is not something that's just happening to those people over there, them, right? Mm. right. <laughs> the, the other category that we create for ourselves, both personally and societally. Like addiction is something we all dabble in. And I think most prime example is your mobile device. I mean, these little devices we carry in our pockets are literally built to be addictive. And it's working on those same brain pathways and brain chemicals as hard substances are like drugs or alcohol. The way I'm hearing you describe this, it sounds almost like more like habits are addictions. Are are you making them synonymous? I wouldn't make them synonymous um, in particular because harder substances do have harder effects, right? On your brain chemistry. But I would at least least draw a correlation so that none of us can feel
feel as far removed as we might like to be. Okay. So help me understand then what would separate, say, you know, uh, biting your fingernails from heavy alcohol abuse? I think the number one separation is the consequences of such. So heavy alcohol use or really drug use of any kind, since that's what's most commonly thought of when it comes to addiction, they have much more negative consequences in those four categories that I outlined in the definition, mentally, emotional, behavioral, and social. Whereas biting your fingernails, it's a little icky, but there are no there are no major consequences. Really Depends on what's right? underneath the fingernail. Really. <laughs> Indeed. How often do you wash your hands? But the other piece that I think is really important to understand is that addiction to substances comes with a massive amount of stigma, which is something I'd love to talk more about later in the podcast. But that stigma is maybe better defined as just shame. Okay. Shame for whatever the hardship is you're experiencing that has led to this substance use and then the symptoms and consequences of that substance use. Okay. So let's talk about shame. Let's go there for a second. Okay. What is shame? So... Man, especially as, as people of faith, I think shame is something we're all pretty familiar with. And it's much different than guilt, right? Because guilt typically leads to better consequences. Shame is a mechanism by which we teach ourselves and others teach us that we are broken fundamentally, right? Broken fundamentally, whether that's because of a behavior or a brain disease like addiction, or whether that's because of something that is part of our identity. That shame is is oftentimes very entrapping and very isolating. And I think those are the defining characteristics as compared to something like guilt. What do those two words use? Entrapping? Entrapping. Entrapping. Like okay. I can't, I can't get it off me. I can't okay. get shame off of me. And then uh, the other piece is isolating. Okay. Let's unpack those two. So why is it entrapping? You say, I can't get it off me. Is it that belief that I have? Is this outwardly imposed? I think shame is internally and external, honestly. And especially in the context of addiction, I mean, we have shame and stigma sort of baked into the way we talk about addiction, especially in the United States. We use words like addicts, junkies, crackheads, potheads, etc. Very stigmatizing, othering language. That's very isolating from an external standpoint. From an internal standpoint, like our bodies know this is not right. Our bodies were created in such a way to respond to substances and to different addictive mechanisms that we might be using in a way that is predictable and scientific, but it also kind of destructive, right? Our body knows something is happening that shouldn't be happening, but that doesn't mean it's not going to continue to respond to the inputs we're giving it. So that internal shame is, is almost biological in nature. Okay. So let's unpack that. When I read, uh, I'm going to, uh, this is not a Christian podcast. It is a podcast though put together by a pastor that right. works at a church. And so we're always walking that fine line of talking about the scriptures and not talking about the scriptures. Sure. And so our audience comes from all over the place in the, on these podcasts, but the Bible, when it talks about shame, it tends to talk about it from the sense of that internal thing I know, which is what you're describing. I know that I've done something wrong and I carry shame and I can carry shame from something my parents handed down to me. Mm-hmm. This what, what Paul talks about, these ways these of our inherited from our ancestors. But it seems like what I see going on in the world today is, um, and not good, bad, or otherwise, not, I'm not even commenting on whether I do or don't agree with it. I'm just saying I see this difference. The way that the world of psychology is talking about the shame today is it's separate from that. That is almost what we describe as guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, as what we're describing as shame is almost a sense of feeling unloved or unlovable. Yes. Because of either something I've done or something somebody else has done to me. Absolutely. Okay, so then how does that go into addiction? What role does that play in addiction? The number one role that shame plays in addiction is keeping people from reaching out for help. Okay. Right, so shame or stigma, whatever word you want to use for it. The entrapment piece, that other word I used, is feeling so trapped within this battle that I'm experiencing, both biologically and societally, that I shouldn't or don't deserve to reach out and get the help I need. Okay, so that's a huge word, deserved. Yeah. So the thinking then is because I've got this addiction, 
addiction. Let's just pick one. And so anybody listening, I'm just picking one of many options. I've got an alcohol addiction. Mm -hmm. And because I have this alcohol addiction and I binge and I purge that when I binge, I know I'm not supposed to, I know I shouldn't. And that makes me dirty. Is that what that means? Dirty. And you even hear that word being used sometimes in the addiction community, dirty versus clean. For okay. example, more stigmatizing language. Yeah, it's taking the disease and the behavior and the symptomatics behavior and attaching it to the personhood of someone. Okay. That is the shame piece versus guilt, right? Okay. Because we have a justice system that punishes the guilty, right? Okay. So with the example of alcohol addiction, if I get a DUI, that is a punishable crime. I am putting other people at risk, right? Like I should feel guilty for that, right? right? That is a problem that needs to be punished. But the shame piece is, and I should never be loved anymore because of it, like right. you had, like you illustrated. Yeah. So then that shame, am I hearing you correctly? That shame, if I don't deal with that, then I may never reach out for help. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can be one of the largest barriers, in particular because we, I say we, representing sort of like the recovery community, if you will, not trying to speak on behalf of them, but just as an ally, we have a way of identifying ourselves with our deepest faults. Mm. Uh, hopefully the listeners can relate to that, you know, whether it's addiction or otherwise, we become, or at least in our minds, we become our worst versions of ourselves after having experienced the consequences of that, right? And it's, it's almost like a loss of hope. And so in many ways, for those of us who are working in the recovery industry, in the mental health industry, we're just trying to reinvigorate and reinstate that hope that leads to the, you know, the rediscovery of one's dignity and the shifting from a shame-based approach to a guilt-based approach and understanding there's consequences for our actions. However, there's also treatment. <laughs> there's also recovery communities, right? There's all of these pieces that, you know, we'll get more into that, that can make a tremendous difference to one's addiction. Years ago, I had a friend and became a mentor for a short season and he had come out of addiction from SA, which uh, stands for uh, Sexaholics Anonymous, mm -hmm. which is very similar to AA, but different struggle. Yeah. He had a struggle with pornography for years, which eventually led him to uh, affairs, which eventually led him to, I don't know, I don't know all the details of his story, wouldn't matter anyway, to getting caught, which led to him telling his wife, which she was just an amazing woman who chose to forgive him. They worked through it. And many years after that, he was my mentor. And he had talked about, he, first of all, he said, I've never experienced church like I experienced it in SA, mm. because here's a group of people who are all broken. They're all, as the Bible calls us sinners, and that they're all knowing that they need a savior. And they're openly confessing their sins to one another, praying for each other that they might be healed. Right. So they're trying to strip away that shame, that identity piece. So when it comes to shame, let's say somebody's out there listening and they go, gosh, I feel like you're identifying what's in my heart sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that. How do I discern whether or not I have an addiction or whether I just enjoy using a substance periodically? Is there a line in there somewhere where I'm controlling it or it's controlling me? There's absolutely a line. Now, at the risk of maybe losing some of the audience's interest, I need to get into a little bit of brain science here, if you'll permit me. Yeah, please do. Okay. I find it fascinating. All right, cool. So addiction is typically the symptom of an internal struggle or problem. Addiction isn't always the problem itself. Now, it causes a lot of problems, but typically it's the symptom of something that's happening deep down, whether that's shame for something else, whether that's some sort of trauma I've experienced in my past, past, whether that is an ongoing stressor in my life, um, it's usually a symptom. When we experience the symptom of addiction in response to this problem, it creates this cycle in our brain called the addiction cycle. It starts with that stressor, that first use 
follows the stressor, whether that is viewing pornography, whether that is taking that first drink, whether that is smoking that first joint, what have you. After the first use, you reach reliance, meaning I rely upon this substance, whatever it is, to help me de-stress. It's my primary coping skill, if you will, to help me de-stress. After reliance comes tolerance, meaning my brain chemistry is now tolerating the level of substance that I'm using and the severity of the substance I'm using in such a way that I need more to achieve a similar output in my brain chemistry. After that tolerance level is reached, you, you find yourself becoming dependent. And dependent is, is full-blown addiction, right? The chemicals at work here in the brain are dopamine, okay? So there's a few areas of the brain. The nucleus accumbens, okay? The hippocampus and the amygdala are sort of the three interior core components of the brain that are at, at work when you, we talk about dopamine. It's actually where we get the slang term dope, right? So Dopamine is released anytime you experience something that is pleasurable, okay, or that you could register as pleasurable. We experience dopamine when our team wins, right? We experience dopamine when we get a high five from a buddy or a kiss from our loved one. We experience dopamine when we get a, you know, a good job at work. We also experience dopamine when we have a drink, when we smoke a joint, etc. Only the levels of dopamine released when we have those substances are dramatically more than what our brain is prepared for in normal everyday interaction. When that massive dopamine release is triggered, it starts creating this addiction cycle, reliance, tolerance, dependence, reliance, tolerance, dependence, until those are well-worn out muscles in your brain, right? Those pathways are deep, like a deep river that keeps getting deeper the more eroded the, the banks of the river get, if that makes sense metaphorically. So this thing happening in your brain is happening subconsciously, right? So if you're just enjoying a drink, like many of us can do and may not have a struggle with addiction, but just, you know, to to be fair to our listeners, the things you need to think about are how much, how often, the type of substance, and what kind of consequences am I experiencing? Okay, so let's go with a drinking example, just for the sake of ease. Am I having a drink a week? Am I having a drink a day? Let's say I'm having a drink a day. Is that becoming two drinks each sitting a day? Three drinks each sitting a day? Right, that's that reliance tolerance. So, so Chase, real quick, would you say then if it's increasing in nature, that should be a huge red flag? Oh, me. for like, sure. In any of these categories, how much, how often, the type, or the consequences of my use. Like if those things are increasing, even incrementally and slowly over time, like those are red flags that you're getting your brain into this addictive cycle, both chemically and you know, electropathically. <laughs> So, you know, if you find yourself moving on from things like pornography to affairs or from alcohol to binge drinking or from marijuana to pills, right? Moving up in the severity, that's another huge red flag. If you find yourself starting to ignore the consequences of your use, like, well, every time I drink, my, my wife or my partner says, I get a lot angrier and shorter, but that's not changing how much I drink. I'm ignoring that consequence. That's a red flag, right? So these are some of the, the, the primary ways you can tell you're, you're moving from just enjoying a substance to this is becoming an addiction, right? This is my brain starting to respond to what I'm giving it in a way that is going to cause more problems than not. You were talking and, and uh, one of my mentors, my friends recently retired uh, pastor, Alan Algram uh, wrote a book and in his book, which I was just reading last night, he's got a chapter on purity. And I thought this is fascinating. Quoting his book real quick, he says, psychologist Jay Lindsay once shared his observations about immorality first with him and then with his church. And he calls it the 12 step affair process. And so I was finding this fascinating the way it's mimicking what you're saying. He said, step one is readiness. Step two is alertness. Step three is innocent meeting with another person. Step four is intentional meeting with a person. Step five is public lingering. Step six is private lingering. Step seven is purposeful isolating with the person. Step eight is pleasurable isolating and then affectionate embracing and then passionate embracing and then capitulation and then just full-blown acceptance. And again, as you were talking, I thought, wow, I've never seen anybody lay it out as like this process. I meet with people all the time who end up there and they think to themselves, how did I get here? But if you were to go back, there is a path. 
There's right. a pattern that they walked but didn't realize they were walking. Absolutely. So let's say somebody's listening today and wherever they are and whatever their addiction they're struggling with or maybe a loved one is struggling with and they're seeing the increasing nature, mm-hmm. how do they stop? What do they do? That's a great question. I want to start just on a hopeful note. Like there are over 24 million people in the United States right now that are in long-term recovery from various addictions. 24 million. That's a bunch of people. Is there any estimate on how many could be if they were getting help? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So there's about 21 million people ages 12 or over who are still currently in active addiction. So if you break that into a ratio, it's about one in 13. Wow. So either you know someone who's addicted or you know someone who knows someone. Or you are. Or you are, right? Now the sad piece, um, not that I want to be a bummer, but it's important to note, only 19% of those 21 million are getting the treatment they need. Wow. Only 19%. So less than a fifth. The answer to the question, how do I stop, is going to be unique to each person, right? Everybody's recovery journey is different. Sometimes it's going to take you a month of hard work. Sometimes it's going to take a decade of hard work. And again, this kind of depends on a number of factors, including like the people in your life, where you live, where you work, what type of substance you're using, where in the addictive cycle your brain is, like what level of brain disease are we at, you know? Those severity pieces and those external pieces do make a tremendous difference. But depending on where you're level of rock bottom is, right? You can always, always, always start your recovery journey, no matter where that level of rock bottom is, whether you just got your third DUI and you've been, you know, having recurrences on a weekly basis, even though you're trying as hard as you can, or whether you just got caught at a party and it's your first drink ever, you know, like there is no point at which it's wrong to start your recovery journey. What is the hardest part about starting my recovery journey? I think the hardest and maybe trickiest part is the risk involved in particular with substance use. So, one of the, the, the parts of the brain that is most affected by the addiction cycle is this risk and reward center of our brain. The reward center becomes hyperactive because of the level of dopamine we're triggering, right? And the risk center becomes underreactive and we start making poorer choices. That's that symptomatic quote unquote behavior that I've been referring to off and on. That prefrontal cortex area gets really, really cloudy when we are in an active addiction. And the quirky, tricky piece is that sub, sub, some substances can kill you, right? Like if your first substance you try is uh, an opioid pill, a painkiller that wasn't prescribed to you. Let's say you buy it from someone else, right? You don't know what's in that pill, right? There are substances like fentanyl right now that a microcosm amount can kill you on your first use, right? So that's one of the biggest barriers, in my opinion, is just the risk involved to getting the help you need. Depending on, on where you're at and what you're using, those risks can kill you. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to bum everybody out, but I think it's important to realize that this is a life or death scenario for many of us who are talking about addiction and experiencing it firsthand or have loved ones who are experiencing it. But the other biggest barriers is what we've already sort of exhausted is, is the stigma. It's the, the identity, the shame piece, the feeling like I can't let anybody know this is happening to me because I'll lose everything. Now, what we fail to realize is that you're already losing everything, right? Because of the substance use, this addiction is affecting all areas of your life. And it's, yeah, it's just kind of a, an internal trade-off there. Years ago, when I was a young, young pastor, really didn't, thought I knew everything, didn't know anything. But somebody once said to me, Matt, the reality is most of us don't change until the pain of changing becomes less than the pain of staying the way we are. So the Mm. reason all of us stay stuck in a pattern is because there is pleasure. The reward center is activated. It does. And we, we have this sense of, I can live with this as long as I don't get caught. Right. And so the whole point of the quote unquote justice system is to increase the pain that makes us say, Hey, now you can't drive or now you can't do these things. And now you're going to end up in jail or now you might lose your family in order to increase the pain to make us try to stop and also to make amends and justice and the whole nine yards. But the whole goal is to try to make a stop. So let's say that 
that I'm listening and I am a parent or I'm a spouse or it's me. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to insert pain into the process to force myself to desire the change before the bottom falls out and it's too late? Oh man, that's such a powerful question, Matt. I want to push back just a little bit on the pain piece because okay. I think there are way more diverse ways of starting a recovery journey than just an increase in pain and consequence. Because from the get-go, like this addiction being the symptom of something more difficult, more strange to understand underneath, inside, that piece has to be addressed still, right? So let's say I develop an addiction because I was abused as a child. Let's say it was a loved one who I thought should love me, um, a parent, for example, and they abused me physically, verbally, sexually, what have you, right? That piece has destroyed my identity. That piece has destroyed my self-esteem. And my coping is the addiction, right? That is how I'm coping with the pain. So increasing my pain is not going to help my addiction in this case, right? right? We need to address that core piece, that underlying piece that is, you know, really destroying my insides, my mental health, my mental and emotional view of who I am as a person. Now, the other piece, the, the, the rock bottom piece, like, well, the consequences of this behavior, of these symptoms, they're going to be addressed no matter what because of things like the justice system, because of things like, you know, how treatment programs are designed to help you become aware and make amends for those things. They're going to be addressed. But I would just push back a little on that being the only way or having to insert pain necessarily. Because sometimes we need someone to insert love into us, right? (laughs) There's so many adults that don't know what it's like to be loved for who they are. It's just true. So many of us have no idea what that feels like to just say, I love Matt for Matt. Do you have a story? Anybody that you've worked with that you can give us without a name? Yeah. I mean, I have I have so many stories, both hopeful and unhopeful, more hopeful than not, thankfully, just because of the nature of where I work. One story that comes to mind is, you know, a client that experienced a really terrible sexual assault from someone who was a friend of a family friend. And that really messed with this particular client in a way that harmed their self-identity. It led to other cope coping mechanisms that are, are difficult to understand, and we probably don't have time to unpack it in this podcast, but things like self-harm, which is the brain's way of trying to control pain, right? If I can control it on myself, then it's no longer out of my control. It's no longer only somebody else causing me pain. Um, but that self-harm piece was eventually sort of the trigger for this person's addiction. Alcohol use was their drug of choice, and it got really out of hand. It included many legal consequences. It included, you know, a, a broken relationship with their partner. It included uh, difficulties with their kids. But what is so beautiful about this particular client's story is that through the therapeutic process at the Willow Center, this client discovered that they're lovable. This client discovered that trauma that happened to them wasn't their fault. You know how many people believe the pain they experience is all their fault, right? Like there's, I mean, man, it, maybe that's just part of our chemistry as human beings, but oftentimes the trauma experience is just happenstance, Right. Now, the things that happen because of our addiction, yes, we have to own own that. We have to take responsibility for those things. But the things that lead up to that, I mean, there's so many of us that are harboring that inside. But this client's in long-term recovery. You know, this client is approaching over a year sober now, which is amazing, and no longer harming themselves, and is an active member of the recovery community in, in, in central Indiana, and is pouring into other people's lives and sharing their story with other people and bringing hope to other people to let them know what happened to you is not your fault. There is hope in recovery, right? Like you can find a brand new life and that's not the way you have to deal with your pain anymore. Years ago, and I want to be careful not to use a name only because I I might say the wrong name. And so (laughs) 
I don't want to get, it's a public statement though. I was driving down the road. I was listening to a Christian radio station and a famous female Christian artist who I believe was on America's Idol, but then became a Christian artist after that experience and was well known and had a food issue. Mm -hmm. And she was doing some sort of interview that I saw and I'm trying to remember the details now. It's been a couple of years and I've slept since then. And I just remember her saying, you know, uh, I was abused in a relationship when I was younger and it dawned on me the reason I was abusing food is because I thought to myself, if I were big, then this will never happen to me again. Mm. Nobody will ever hurt me in this way again. And it wasn't until I think she did some therapy and some counseling and came to the conclusion that I'm abusing myself. I'm not taking care of my own body, this gift, this temple that God has given me. I am not taking care of it because I'm trying to prevent something terrible from happening to me again. Mm -hmm. And that basically I'm letting letting a second trauma happen to me by treating myself this way. I kind of hear you reflecting that same thing back, though it may not be food. It may be alcohol or drugs or something else. Like I'm allowing a second trauma to occur by not embracing the first trauma and what happened. Right. Okay, so to that end now, what goes through my mind here, Chase, is, okay, let's just use somebody who say they were abused as a child. And clearly that's not everybody who has addiction, right? right. But let's just say, for, take that story you used, and now I become an addict, but now I'm abusing others through my actions, whether it's my withdrawal and not giving them the love that they need and deserve, or whether it's my anger when I'm abusing, you know what I mean? Or maybe I'm hitting or screaming or cussing or whatever it is, threatening. Right. And so then how in the world am I, because, I mean, this is what the Bible teaches us, we aren't just impacted by others sins, we are sinners. And so we are part of the problem. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Which goes to the root of the shame. So then how do I deal with this? How do I make amends when I'm not just carrying the weight of what others have done to me, but also the weight of what I've done to others? I think the first step to making amends is ad- admitting that you need to make them, right? Back to that first step in the 12 steps, it's admitting our powerlessness. We have to come to a place where we understand I have been enslaved to something mm-hmm. and that enslavement has made me somebody I don't want to be, right? I-, I think it's important to consider the morality piece of our actions. I think it's also a really interesting discussion from a scientific standpoint in that addiction, unlike other diseases, has almost exclusively behavioral symptoms, right? Like when you get diabetes, right? Like you're not you're not going to steal from anybody, typically. Now, insulin's ridiculous expensive, so I wouldn't blame you if you did. Okay. But you, you get my point, right? When you break an arm, you get a cast, right? Like there's no behavioral symptoms. But when you are suffering from addiction, it's almost all behavioral, right? Like like you said, abusing others, um, having you know emotional mood swings and regulation. Like the the best way to make amends, I think, is starting from that place of realizing I am responsible for the pieces I'm responsible for, and then getting help. Um, something we say often at the Willow Center is that the opposite of addiction is connection, not just sobriety. Not just not using or not viewing or not whatever. The opposite of addiction is connection. Connecting to your higher power, um, connecting to others in recovery, connecting to professionals who can help you, right? That connection piece is what's going to help get you to the place where you can start saying, I was wrong this behavior. I was wrong for the way I treated you. I shouldn't have stolen from you. I shouldn't have used so much to hide whatever I was going through, to escape whatever I was going through. Like I realize my actions have hurt you. Even if I don't understand how those actions are tied to what was happening in my brain because of the substance, I take responsibility for the pieces I take responsibility for. There's a lot of work that has to be done before we get to that point. That's right. That's not really like step two, right? In the 12 steps, right? There's some internal stuff that you have to work hard on to understand about yourself and about this disease to get to that point of making amends. But making amends is possible. And most people are willing to forgive. Most people are. And I love that about humanity, you know? The people of second chance, right? Yes. The thing I keep hearing you say is it's almost like we have to make peace with 
controlling the things we can't control and letting go of the things we can't, which mm-hmm. I know is the serenity prayer, the heart of the serenity prayer, yeah. right? Lord, grant me the, what does it grant me the power to uh, control the things I can, accept the things I can't, the wisdom to know the difference. Right. Something, Lord, grant me the serenity, I think is how it starts. Yeah. But that sounds easier said than done. Said than done. Again, as a pastor at a church who is a Christian, so I realize everybody listening to this may not be that, what I often find myself saying in private one-on-one counselings, and occasionally in a sermon from the stage is, I'll literally look at somebody and say, I want you to repeat after me, and it'll feel so hokey to them. I'm like, I don't care how Jesus feels. I want you to do it anyway. Ready? You say, I, I am, am not, not Jesus. <laughs> I can't fix anybody. I can't save anybody. I yeah. can't change anybody. It's my way of reminding myself. I am a conduit to Jesus. I am not him. I don't have that kind of power. So I hear you saying in a lot of ways, the addict in order to defeat the addiction has to make peace with who they are in the world. Yes. Yeah, there has to be a piece, a piece both aren't. in the broken pieces and on the whole pieces, right? That's that, that sort of foundational building block that has to be laid in order to take the next steps to becoming a better version of ourselves. And it's not all just about self-improvement, right? So much of this is internal work. So much of this is about finding hope and love again, um, because so much of that is lost during an addiction. But that foundational building block, that acceptance that I'm at peace with what has happened, and I'm here to make more peace now yeah. with what's going to happen. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. It's not going to be completely different. It's going to turn and we'll probably come back again. So give me some grace here, Chase, because you were prepared for this question, but I'm ready. How do you, as somebody who's leading others into this place, how do you continue to keep yourself healthy and keep yourself anchored so that you're not drawing water from an empty well? Does that make sense? Yes. That's such a good question. And I'm really glad you asked it. So the world of social work and mental health is notorious for burning providers out. We, again, now speaking on behalf of, you know, those who are in therapy and those who are counseling others, we pour ourselves out so much that we, we forget to take care of ourselves. And we have the same brains our clients have, you know? <laughs> Imagine that, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I'm not Jesus. I can't fix anybody. Right. Yeah. Like, this is why you see, like, really high rates of substance use with, like, first responders, for example. Those who are pouring themselves out for others all day long and carrying other people's trauma all day long, not taking care of themselves. So to answer your question, how do I do that? I think, number one, you have to know your limits. Like, number two, you have to have a support system in place, other people who either work in the industry, and you have to have healthy coping skills for your own stress, right? Because if we're not practicing what we preach, if we will, there's no way we can help other people. And that's actually one of those steps in the 12-step process. The 12th step is carrying the message onward, right? Carrying the message of recovery to someone else. That's that sort of that 12-step piece. So you have to do 11 other steps of caring for yourself, of fixing your own problems, of working through the internal and external consequences of your use before you are ready to then give it to someone else. Like that model astounds me because like there are so many other areas of life where I think taking that much attention to care for ourselves well, to take care to take care of ourselves before we try and pour out into others. It's really missed. Not to pick on, I'm a person of faith, just to be clear with the listeners, not to pick on the faith community, but we are notorious for like poverty Olympics and like suffering Olympics. And what I mean with that metaphor is like we sometimes try to outdo each other with suffering, <laughs> which is really unhealthy where it's like, oh yeah, well, I made five meals last week for five other people and I ate rice and beans and, and <laughs> woe is me, but I'm close to Jesus because of it. And it's like, boy, I applaud the person's compassion, but like you can't pour out continuously into other people without taking care of yourself. Even the old, um, you know, the golden rule, the words of Jesus are love your neighbor as yourself. What if you hate yourself? What if the love that you show yourself is really negligible if existent at all? Can you love your neighbor?
neighbor. Like if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, there has to be some sort of level of self-care involved. Yeah, I would say, honestly, I've struggled with this some in the past. If it were up to my wife and I, we'd probably give away every dime we own. Oh, sure. It's just that sooner or later we have to eat and we got to figure out how to get to work and we got to have clothes that are not falling off our bodies. Right. And so we had to set limits. And I've talked extensively about this at my church, but we've had to set limits on our generosity to make sure that we're both being generous, but also meeting our family's needs and whatnot. Absolutely. And so I get it. Uh, and I do see that whole poverty Olympics <laughs> or whatever you, right. whatever you call suffering it, Olympics, yeah. suffering Olympics, sorry, where it's like, uh, we're going to, we're going to outdo everybody else with our suffering. I feel like there's so much more we can talk about Chase. Why don't we go ahead and wrap this up and uh, we'll come back, do another, another uh, episode here. And uh, I just want to say to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Obviously we are a church at Kingsway Christian Church. You can find more about us at kingswaychurch.org. If you want to learn more, uh, you can also look up Chase Cotton at the Willow Center and just hope that you are blessed and this encouraged you today. God bless you. Thank you.